apostles were not political revolutionaries. They were evangelists and church planters. And their goal was to live and to help other Christians live within their evil society in a godly way that led other people to Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder for us this morning as we come to this topic uh, through the lens of Scripture, nowhere in Scripture is a Christian told to rebel or revolt in order to gain freedom, opportunity, or economic, social, or political rights. We're never instructed to do that. New Testament teaching does not focus on reforming and restructuring social systems because those are never the root of the problem. The issue is always an issue of the heart of man, which when wicked will corrupt the best of systems and when righteous will improve the worst. If men's sinful hearts are not changed, they will always find ways to oppress other people, whether through slavery or not. Man's basic problems and needs are not political. They are not social. They are not economic. They are spiritual. The problem with man is the problem of heart. And so while Paul didn't directly attack slavery, he taught principles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, which undermined its practice. And as Christianity spread and gained influence, its presence subverted all forms of tyranny, conflict, and hatred, including slavery. And as the Roman Empire disintegrated and eventually collapsed, the brutal system of slavery collapsed with it due in significant part to the influence of Christianity. That's why Philip Ryken said Christianity eventually did become the single greatest force in the history of the world for the eradication of slavery. Wherever Christianity has come to dominate a culture, the institution of slavery has been legally eliminated, end quote. And so where the issue of slavery is explicitly addressed in the New Testament, the focus is on the responsibilities of Christian masters and slaves toward one another. For instance, in two of his letters, Paul gives specific instructions to Christian masters regarding the treatment of their slaves in Colossians 4 and Ephesians chapter 6. But however, as we come to Titus chapter 2, the emphasis is not on the master-slave relationship, it is on the slave-master relationship. How are Christian slaves to behave in relation to their masters. In verses 9 and 10, Paul teaches us. William Barclay said, Paul does not tell them to rebel. He tells them to be Christians where they are. And this is why Paul's teaching in this passage is directly transferable to you and me. He is teaching us how to live the Christian life where we are in our workplace. And if we rightly translate his comments here to Christian workers generally, 
we must remember how much more challenging his words were to the men and women on the island of Crete under their conditions. And yet, whether we are slave or free, we should realize that our conduct in the workplace will disclose clearly whether our profession of faith is real or whether it is counterfeit. We need to remember that God is sovereign over our lives and he knows each and every one of our situations. And he has sovereignly placed us there so that our first concern should be to honor him and to represent him well where we work and where we live. And to this end, Paul highlights six characteristics that we should display in our faith at work. Now, that was a long introduction. I never do long introductions like that. Be encouraged. The points will go much faster than the introduction. First of all, he tells them in verse number nine, be submissive. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. The word bond servants, as I mentioned, refers to slaves, those who were owned and controlled by their masters. And the Roman Empire depended upon these bond servants for the majority of its labor. They were an essential part of society and the economy. And many of these bond servants were given great responsibility and authority in running households and family farms and other businesses. And you will notice at the beginning of verse 9 that Paul in no way addresses the condition that they are under. He offers no judgment about its fairness or its morality. He simply acknowledges that it exists and he deals with the attitude that Christian bondservants should have toward their masters, whether those masters are believers or unbelievers. And the emphasis here at the beginning of verse 9 is on the responsibility of Christian bondservants to serve their own human masters faithfully and fully in order to reflect the transforming power of the gospel. And that's the key to the heart of Paul's instructions in these two verses. He is challenging these Christian workers to exhibit and live out the transforming power of the gospel for everyone around them to see. One commentator said, For many Christians today, as throughout church history, the most important and fertile field for evangelism is the place where they work. That is their mission field. As in almost no other place, unbelievers have the opportunity to observe believers in day-by-day situations and activities. They see whether the believer is patient or impatient, kind or uncaring, selfless or selfish, honest or dishonest, clean or vulgar in his talk. They have the opportunity to see how well the Christian lives up to the faith he professes and the principles of Scripture he claims to hold dear. Inviting unsaved friends to church certainly has a place in witnessing for Christ, but it will be useless and even counterproductive if one's attitude, reliability, and honesty on the job are questionable. End quote. The workplace 
is the mission field for the majority of Christians. And the question that this text poses is, as a Christian worker, are you submissive to the authority that is placed over you? The word submissive, as we've studied in this text, is a military word. It's used to designate a soldier's relationship to their superior officers. It is an imperative verb, and it means it's a command. Now, Paul is actually commanding these bondservants, and he is commanding you and me to be submissive to authority in our workplace. And the authority in this passage is the masters, the ones who have absolute authority and power. It is a reminder from Scripture, friends, that the Christian is never one who is above taking orders. Our Christianity teaches us how to serve and how to work because the duty of submission is emphasized all throughout the New Testament. All Christians are called to submit to God-ordained authority. Christian citizens must obey civil authorities, Romans 13.1. Christian men and women must submit to the spiritual authority of church leaders, Hebrews 13.17. Wives must submit to their husbands, Titus 2.5. And children must obey their parents, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. In each of these instances, our submission to proper authority is ultimately rendered out of respect and obedience to God. And Paul, in other places, gives detailed descriptions of what this submission to authority in the workplace looks like. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your submission to authority in the workplace is really a submission to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. My translation, you are to submit to the authority over you in the workplace whether you like them or not, whether they're fair to you or not. Whether they're kind to you or not, that is never the issue. It's an issue of submission to the God-ordained authority placed over you. And this authority should not be rebelled against. And notice what the text says in verse number 9, in everything. Don't you wish it didn't say that? It's the scope of our submission and our service. Now listen to me carefully, friends. This is not a limitless submission and authority. There are four exceptions to submitting to authority in the workplace. When it is unbiblical, when it is illegal, when it is unethical, and when it is immoral. And outside of those four exceptions, our responsibility is to submit. 
Now, as fast as the world and the workplace is changing, it is highly likely that some of you in this room will be faced with a situation in which one of these four exceptions applies. Now, I want you to listen to your pastor this morning because I thought long and hard about this before I put it into the sermon. My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the glory of God. My job is to equip you and prepare you for what's coming for you. And eternity is coming for you. And the Lord Jesus Christ is coming for you. And one day you will stand and give an account of your life to Jesus Christ, the good and the bad and the indifferent. And before that time, it is highly possible that Christian workers in this room will be faced with an unbiblical order. They will be faced with an unethical order. They will be faced with an immoral order. And your pastor is asking you this morning if in that moment when that unbiblical, immoral, unethical order comes, if you will stand up for Jesus Christ. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your livelihood. But in the end, friends, that's not really the issue. The issue is really your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood and died for you. The one to whom your soul will give an account on the day of judgment. You may be a teacher in this room this morning and you may be faced with an order to teach your students in the classroom something that goes totally against the word of God. And the question is, will you stand up and say, I refuse to do that? It is unbiblical. It is unethical. You will not prey on the kids in my classroom. That's the question. That's the question. You might be faced with going to jail. Would you be willing to identify yourself like the Apostle Paul? And go to prison for your faith? These are serious, sober times, friends. This passage is relevant. It is relevant to every single one of us. And so unless it meets one of these exceptions, regardless of how unreasonable and ununderstanding your boss may be, regardless of how oppressive your work situation may be, you must... Submit. And I'll remind you this morning that your submission is really a submission to Jesus Christ. And when you view your submission to Jesus Christ, it transforms your view of submission. Well, we not only are told to be submissive, secondly, in verse number nine, we are told to be pleasant. They are to be well pleasing. It helps to be pleasant. When you go to work, the phrase well-pleasing speaks of the spirit of our service. In the New Testament, this phrase is almost always used of being acceptable and pleasing to God. It's used in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Well-pleasing. Present your life. Present your work as a living sacrifice that pleases God. That's the context of Romans 12. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, he uses the phrase this way. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We make it our aim, Paul says, to be well-pleasing. And so he tells bondservants to strive to please and satisfy their masters. It means they're to be conscientious and hardworking. If a bondservant is lazy or does his work carelessly or half-heartedly, he will never be well-pleasing to his master. And in like manner, Christian employees should strive to please their employer. We, as Christians, should be conscientious workers. We should be the hardest workers in the workplace. We should pursue excellence in all of our work, including our attitude, our conduct, and our productivity. It's not wrong for us to work hard and produce excellent work and seek to please our employers so that we might gain advancement and increase in our income, as long as our motive for doing this is right. But it should never be our highest objective. Our highest objective should be to please Jesus with the way that we work, to be pleasant in our work, to be well-pleasing. So we're not only to be submissive, and we're not only to be pleasant. Number three, we are told to be polite, not argumentative, not argumentative. This describes the spirit of our work. It literally means to speak against in the sense of talking back or contradicting. It carries the ideas of mouthing off, of being contentious, and of being disagreeable. This command is the exact opposite of the first two. It is the exact opposite of being submissive, and it is the exact opposite of being well-pleasing. A bondservant receives his orders, and he's not happy with what he's told to do. So he makes a snide remark. He grumbles and complains. He may go on to do the work, and he may go on to obey, but he does it with combative words and with a rebellious spirit. And as Christians, we're to be characterized by self-control in the use of our tongues. And in this context, that means we don't talk back to those who are authority over us. It means that we're not contentious. We're not argumentative. We're not disagreeable. We're not rude. We don't grumble. We don't complain. Nor do we talk about our boss behind their back with the rest of our co-workers. It ruins our testimony as followers of Jesus Christ. And this, friends, out of the ones listed so far, may be the toughest for us, if we're honest. How many times have you found yourself in a conversation with coworkers and the subject of the boss or those in authority comes up and you're faced with the decision, do you join in? Or do you step out and refuse to be a part of that conversation? Scripture reminds us over and over that what comes out of our mouth is a condition of what's really in our hearts. And the book of Proverbs is full of counsel regarding our speech and how we talk. If you went through and underlined every verse in Proverbs that talked about speech and talk and words... That whole book in your Bible would be marked up. Here's a couple of examples. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, 
goes about with crooked speech. Did you hear that? A worthless person has crooked speech. A wicked person has crooked speech. Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, and he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. That, that verse is actually very helpful in a practical way. Before you go to work tomorrow morning, pray Proverbs 13.3, God, put a guard over my mouth. Just seal it shut. Proverbs 16, 27 and 28, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Do you hear that? He's describing the destruction of words and speech. It's like a fire that spreads and scorches everything. It's like a person who whispers gossip and separates close friends and causes harm and destroys relationships. Now, Paul's instruction here does not refer to standing up for our convictions or for what we believe is right and proper and God-honoring. It does address our self-interest and our preferences, not being argumentative. And in the day in which we live that is full of self-centeredness and self-elevation and self-promotion, being argumentative, is one of, has become one of the most acceptable ways to live. And even Christians are falling prey to that. And I ask you, dear brother, dear sister, do you want to be known as a grumbler? Do you really want to be known as a disagreeable person? Do you really want to be known and have people think that when you come to the coffee pot, everything that's going to come out of your mouth is negative? And that the people around you are going to walk away and feel like you threw up all over them? Is that really the kind of testimony that you want to have? To be the kind of person that when someone sees you coming, they try to duck to the right or to the left or to the side or look really busy or put something up over their head so they don't make eye contact with you? Like you're disagreeable in your home and then you just carry that into the workplace. You just want everybody around you to suffer. We're to be submissive. We're to be pleasant. We're to be polite. Verse 10, we're to be honest, not pilfering. It literally means to put aside for oneself or misappropriate. It's used for stealing by embezzlement or petty theft. As I mentioned to you early on in the sermon, Roman masters were often removed from their businesses and homes, and bond servants were frequently used as stewards and managers. As a result, they were entrusted with all of the master's wealth and resources, and there was plenty of opportunity for misappropriation of money and food and jewelry and other valuables entrusted to their care. And so Paul tells bond servants not to steal from their masters. And likewise, Christians are not to be thieves. We are not to be men and women that can, cannot be trusted when no one is around. We're to be honest. We're to be dependable. We're to be people of integrity. Uh, Christian workers do not take what belongs to another while justifying in their mind that they deserve it or they've earned it. 
nor do they inflate expense reports, falsify timesheets, or engage in unauthorized use of their employer's resources. Christian workers give an honest day's work for a day of pay, not checking Instagram and Facebook and all of the other platforms and vices that distract us. They don't take work supplies home for personal use. They conduct themselves with absolute honesty and integrity. After all, remember, friends, we're serving Christ, and who of us would steal from Christ? And when we pilfer, our unethical actions not only damage our employers financially, they damage the Lord's name and our testimony. We're to be honest in our work, submissive, pleasant, polite, honest. Number five, we're to be faithful, but showing all good faith. The word faith is literally translated faithfulness. It means trustworthiness and reliability. It is a person who is dependable, even when they're not being observed by their master or their employer. And look at the text in verse 10. It says that you are to show your faith. It is to show forth for the purpose of demonstrating or proving, proving something. You are to show by the way you work your faithfulness. You are to show by the way you work as a Christian your good faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is commanding bond servants to demonstrate their faithfulness in their work in such a way that their masters can rely upon them. That their masters know that they're loyal and they're dependable. And do you know there's a perfect example of this in the Old Testament? In the biblical character, Joseph. You remember Joseph, don't you? His brothers sold him into slavery. And he became a slave of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. And while he was in Potiphar's service, the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph. And he blessed Joseph and he helped Joseph in that service. So much so that Potiphar recognized the blessing and the hand of God upon Joseph's life. And he put Joseph in charge of everything in his household. And here's the description of it in Genesis chapter 39 in verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Potiphar knew that Joseph was so faithful, he entrusted everything that he had to him. Joseph was utterly trustworthy. And like Joseph and like the bondservants of Paul's day, Christian workers are not to leave their loyalty to their employer in doubt, but are to give ample evidence of our faithfulness. One commentator said, whether between employer and employee, husband and wife, or between friends, trust is earned by honorable behavior performed consistently and dependably. Trust comes not only from actions, from, but from our demeanor. Listen to the end of it. This is why I put it in the sermon. It comes from our constancy of soul. Are we constant in our soul in faithfulness to our work. We're to be known for our loyalty and integrity. 
We're to be known for our reliability. Others may be cheat the boss, but we don't. Others may be uh, bitter towards the boss, but we are not. Our faith in Christ enables us to be faithful in the workplace. Despite our work conditions, we have a future and a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And looking to Jesus in his example of servanthood teaches us to love and put others first even, even when they don't deserve it. And by casting our cares upon him, we are reminded that he knows what it means to be tempted and tested. And he is able to sympathize with us in our trials and in our triumphs in the workplace. And so we're faithful to Christ by being faithful in our work. Dependable, loyal, trustworthy. This is quite a list, isn't it? Submissive. Pleasant, polite, honest, faithful. Notice there's a final one. And the final one really sums up all of verse 9 and all of verse 10. And if you will, friends, the final one sums up the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2. This is the whole point of this section of Scripture and all the instructions that we've been looking at for five weeks. Do you see it? Be adorning, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you know what Paul is teaching us? Godly service, godly work has gospel implications. Look at the, this phrase in verse 10, so that. Why does he say so that? So you don't miss the point of the passage. This is the point of the text. So that in everything you would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's very similar to what he said to uh, the women in Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. They should follow the instructions that he gave them that the word of God may not be reviled. It is similar to the instructions that he gave the men in Titus chapter 2 and verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We live our lives of faith in the workplace so that God and his word would not be reviled. We live our lives and our faith in the workplace like this so that no one would have anything evil to say about us or to say about God. We live our lives and our faith in the workplace like this so that we would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Well, what is adorn? It's where we get our English word cosmos from which we get our English word cosmetics. The root idea of the word is that of arranging something in a proper order to give it some symmetry and beauty. We're Another way to think of it is you're taking chaos and you're giving it order. In ancient times, it was used of arranging jewels in a brooch or a necklace or a ring or a crown so that the gems could be on full display for all to see. It, it's similar to what you would do when you go to the jewelry store to buy that ring for that special lady in your life. And they pull out that black or dark blue mat and they said all of those rings out there, the biggest ones first, so you'll look there. And you see all of the diamonds sparkling. They've put it on full display for you to see. 
Do you see the text? You live your life of faith this way. Older men, you invest in younger men. Older women, you invest in younger women. Younger men, younger women, you live this way. You live out your faith and your life and work so that you would put on full display for all to see the beauty of God your Savior. That He wouldn't be hidden. And notice how he describes it. The doctrine of God our Savior. It is referring to Christ and all that God has done for us through His Son in all of its saving beauty. And what Paul is saying to them and what he is saying to you and me is that the reputation of God and His doctrine of salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, That reputation is in your hands when you go to work. You represent the saving grace, transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your work. And the quality of your life and the quality of your work will testify to everyone around you whether the gospel and the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is true. After all, if you claim to be a Christian and have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and have repented of your sins and you live and work like the other people in your workplace who don't know Christ, why should they believe that Jesus has changed you? You're no different than the rest of them. And they're saying to themselves, if that's what a Christian is like, I don't want any part of that. You're just like I am. I don't see any change or transformation or difference in you. The reputation of the gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ is at stake in how we live our lives and in how we work. Do you know in the context of the passage? Remember, the bondservants, they permeated every area of Roman society. And what greater witness for the gospel could there be than these servants fully transformed by the grace of God in every area of public life? And do you know what history records? History records that noble Romans became Christians through the influence of their servants. And that's how in these positions of high leadership, change began to take place in society. Listen to me, friends. If you've repented of your sins... And you've trusted Christ to be your Savior. The Bible says, by the goodness and the grace of God, you have become a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a slave of Christ. You have been bought by his blood. You have been forgiven and set free from the chains of your sin. And this transformation of your life changes everything, including the way you work, so that you beautify and adorn 
for all to see the gospel of God, your Savior. And when you live the transformed life that Jesus Christ has brought into your life through his resurrection power, you will force all of your co-workers, all of your bosses to come face to face with the transforming reality of Jesus Christ. If your life has truly been changed by Christ, they can't look at you and say, Jesus didn't change you. It won't hold water. They'll be able to look at you and say, there's something different about you. What has made that change? Oh, your, your co-workers, they need the truth. But in addition to the truth, they need the evidence of your changed life. They need to see that you're pleasant and you're lovely and that Jesus has made a difference in you. And that's why, by God's grace, all of us need to take these instructions to heart. Whether working in the home or outside of the home, all of these truths apply. So let me ask you, Christian, what is your reputation in your place of work? Are you submissive? Or... On the other end of that spectrum, are you violating your conscience and your obedience to Christ by submitting to instructions that are unbiblical? Are you pleasant? Are you a joy to be around? Is your, or is your reputation that of a complainer? Are you honest in your work and the resources that have been entrusted to you? Are you faithful? Jesus Christ more beautiful and attractive because of the way you live your life and your work in the workplace Jesus Christ is never going to be fully popular but he shouldn't be hated because of the way Christians live and work that's the point point. and what makes the church attractive and influential in the world is not its strategy or its programs it's the changed lives of people. People who are submissive. People who are excellent in their work. People who are respectful in their attitude. People who are honest. People who are loyal in their service. People who beautify Jesus Christ in the way they live. Let's take faith to work. Let's pray.